It's that kind of irreverence that I'm talking about, that kind of fun. Where in the Bible does it say that we ought to be having fun in church? I don't read it in my word. And after I get done preaching at you here in a second or two, you ain't going to be clapping, I don't think, because I'm here to proclaim a word to you. This is a BS Baptist church. It's a backslidden Baptist church. That's right. I read in my Bible some things that I just don't see preached from your whimsy, whimsy, no good for nothing, effeminate preacher up there. I hear he's even wearing a ponytail these days. Oh, no, 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 no. My Lord, mercy, mercy, mercy. You see, the Bible says, I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that a man ought not to have a hat on his head when he's praying or prophesying. And it also says right in that very same verse, that women ought to have coverings on their head, young lady. I, I, I don't see it here. Oh, no, look at this. No covering. What's the deal here? It's right in the Word. Ought to be wearing a veil. It says right in chapter 14 that women ought to keep silence in the church and learn. All right, come on. I'm not getting many amens here. Come on, see. <laughs> women ought to learn in, my favorite word, submission. There it is. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32 Ought to keep silence and learn in submission. I mean, you ought not to be even being out loud with your prayers. You ought to do it in your heart. You ought to, no, no, it should be no place for teaching for a woman, no place of authority. Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that women ought not to have on their head braids. Hmm? I'm looking around here. No, no, braids, young lady. Oh, I rebuke you. And you ought to be very mad at your mother right about now. Well, we ought not to have braids. She ought not to wear jewelry, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. She ought not to have gold. She ought not to have pearls. Oh, you hear what I'm saying now. This is the word of God here. And I look around and I see jewelry. I see pearls. I see braids. I see all this stuff going on. And I'm wondering, where is the word of God in all this? Come on now. Come on, you follow me. It says right there two verses later, chapter, verse 14, chapter 2, 1 Timothy, that a woman ought not to have authority over a man. But again, it says my favorite word, you ought to learn in full submission. I hear that you have got in this church and a senior pastor level a woman. Mercy, mercy, mercy. You got women on the board. You got women teaching here. You got women having all sorts of authority. But my Bible tells me it ought not to be so, BC Baptist Church. Are you following me now? Where's the amens? Come on. Come on. Okay. I'm just getting warmed up. It says, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 22 that women ought not to wear men's apparel. Oh, there you go. And everybody knows who's got half a brain and half a spirit in their soul. Everybody knows that pants are for men. Where do these women come off wearing pants? That's, that's man's apparel. And men, you ought not to be wearing women's apparel. But I'm not even going to preach about that. It says four verses later in the... Deuteronomy chapter 22, that you ought not to wear wool and cotton together. Eh? See, you, you haven't heard that because your preacher doesn't preach the truth. But it says in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 14, I believe it is, that you ought not to wear fabric that is made of wool and cotton together. So if there's anybody in this congregation who's wearing something other than 100% wool, and you're going to be real hot right now, or 100% cotton, you are violating the word of God. It's right there. It says in Proverbs 23, don't look on the wine when it's red. Don't look on it even. Drink Chablis. No. Um, <clears throat> oh, no. I hear you got wine bibbers in there who have a little wine here and there and thither and wither, but it ought not to be. You ought not to be even looking on that wine when it's bubbly and red. No, sir. No, sir. No, sir. 
and so on and so on. The Word of God has all the rules and stipulations and legislations and bondages that we need to adhere to, and I hear that you're not doing it, so I'm going to go kick your pastor's booty right now and get him out of this place. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, how do I look? Yeah. I got a verse for you, too. <laughs> okay. There's a very important... Is my mic on? Mic, 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 mic. There's an important principle in all this, believe it or not. <clears throat> and, 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 and an important question to ask, and this is a good time to ask it. And that is this. You find in the Bible, you find in the Bible timeless truths, things that God uh, wants us to adhere to. I like dressing like this. I mean, this is, this is I feel like a preacher. <laughs> uh, I do look hot. Thank you, sister. Um, you find the timeless word of God, yes, um, packaged in cultural packaging. And the question is, What? 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 Oh, the, the backs. I never, you know, I can't see it, so what does it matter? So I never, I never tuck in the back. I was like that at my wedding. In fact, they, they, you could see it. It was all coming out of the back. Out of sight, out of mind. The issue is this. How do you address the questions of this preacher? Okay, and this is kind of what I confront occasionally. Um, this mindset. You find a verse in the Bible. There it is, right there. Women shouldn't have braided hair. Okay? Now, do we just pick and choose from the Bible whatever we want to believe or not want to believe? I mean, what's the deal here? Now, everybody knows that everybody, I don't even this Mr. Literalist pastor here, understands that there are some things in the Word of God that are culturally conditioned. No one's running around today saying that we ought to be practicing polygamy. Not even the Mormons. There was an article in the paper this morning about how they're embarrassed by their polygamy. They used to teach that polygamy was a good thing, even a necessary thing. But no one does that, but it's in the Bible. Okay? The Bible says five times in the New Testament, greet each other with a holy kiss. I knew a pastor who tried that and got sued. Uh, I'm serious. But they understand that that's a cultural thing. So the question you've got to ask is this. How do you know what is and is not culturally conditioned in the Bible. I don't hear anyone today saying that we ought to um, be practicing slavery, thank God. But you find verses in the Bible which, even though it maybe doesn't say it's a good thing, at least accepts it. So the question is, what is and is not? So it's teaching time here. I'm going to give three principles that to take to the Word of God that help you understand, help all of us understand three commonly accepted scholarly principles that help us delineate between what is and is not the, uh, part of the cultural packaging of the New Testament and the entire Bible, and what is part of the timeless truths of the Bible. And this is important. How, how you settle these issues decides a lot of things, like whether women have to wear veils in church, whether men have to wear hats uh, or, or shouldn't wear hats, um, whether women can be uh, in ministry or not. These are important issues. So let me lay out here three principles. Number one. You need to ask the question, what, what is uniformly taught throughout the whole of the Bible and what is not uniformly taught throughout the Bible? Is a particular teaching consistent throughout the whole Word of God or does it change here and there? 
depending on what culture is writing in the Word of God. For example, you find throughout the Bible from beginning to end that sex is always reserved for marriage. You never find that teaching equivocated on, uh, disagreed with, or anything. It's, it's, it's unequivocal throughout the whole Word of God. That tells you that sex should be reserved for marriage, and that's not a cultural thing. If there's a culture which disagrees with that, it's wrong. So that's something that the Bible has to confront. Homosexuality. You find throughout the Bible, unequivocally, without exception, homosexuality condemned as sin. It's, it's, it's uh, never accepted. Never is, a, is that teaching ever backed off on. That tells you that you're dealing with a timeless truth of the Bible. Drunkenness. Or any kind of anything other than sobriety is uniformly condemned in Scripture. It's, it's not uh, something that ought to be practiced. It's, it's consistent, unanimous, from beginning to end. That tells you that you're dealing with a timeless truth, a timeless teaching. Other things, however, are not like that. For example, whether you should drink wine or not. You have two verses in the Bible, and they're the ones that preachers like this and Bill Gothard and others hit on very hard, which says, be careful about wine. In fact, don't drink wine. You find a number of other verses in the Bible which say that it's okay to drink wine in moderation or drink in, in, in moderation. It's even recommended at times. Paul, Paul recommends to Timothy that he has a little wine for his stomach's sake. The Lord, uh, David in Psalms 104, verse 15, I think it is. <laughs> I have these weird verses memorized. Why? Um, but it says in Psalms 104, verse 15, Bless the Lord who gives us wine to make the heart glad. Um, Paul says that, that the elders of the church should not be given to too much wine, which uh, implies that drinking it in moderation is okay. Just don't be a drunkard, which, is, which throughout the Bible is condemned. So apparently being drunk is a, uh, or abstaining from drunkenness or getting high is a uniform teaching of the Bible, and it's, it's transcultural. But whether you drink wine or not depends on the particular situation that you're in. Sometimes it's expedient, sometimes it's not expedient. You have to decide that on a cultural, uh, particular basis. Uh, so also with, I would argue, women leadership. You have instances in the Bible where women are leaders, strong leaders, all over all of Israel, Deborah was. Uh, you even have in the New Testament the, the uh, role of women in some situations where it's clear they have some authority. But you have other verses that seem to prohibit that. What that should tell you, since you don't have a uniform testimony, is that it depends on the cultural situation. I'll say more about that a little bit later on. Whether you should wear jewelry or not. And sometimes it's condemned. Other times it's seen as being a gift from God. That tells you that it's part of the cultural conditioning. What about hair on men? One of the things the preacher forgot to say is that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that women ought to have long hair and men ought to have short hair. Now is that something we ought to be enforcing now, preaching like the gospel? Well, unfortunately, you have other verses which, which uh, portray long hair as a, as a good thing. Samson, for example. He, remember him? He, he, got, he got stronger as his hair got longer. And uh, that seems to be a culturally relative thing. And well, I'll say more about that as well uh, later on. So you need to ask the question, what is uniform and what is not uniformly taught throughout the Scripture? And that helps you understand part of what is the timeless teaching of the Bible and what is not. If you confuse that, you end up preaching culture as though it was the gospel. And that's when things get really sticky and hairy and weird and ungodly. Principle number two. You need to distinguish between what is the principle of a verse and what is the application of a verse. For example, when Paul says, that, or Peter says it too, five times in the New Testament, 
greet each other with a holy kiss. The principle there is clearly greet each other warmly. We ought to be friendly to one another. We ought to welcome one another. In the first century, that was done between men and men, men and women, everybody, with a kiss, a holy kiss. In this lawsuit liable happy society, you don't do that. You handshake if you dare do that. Um, but there's other ways. The application of the principle is different in our culture than it was in their culture. And you have to make that distinction. Whether you wear hats or not in church, the principle involved in 1 Corinthians 11 is this. Here's what Paul's concerned with. Keeping order in church. Don't do shocking things in church that distract from your testimony to the world or from the focus of Jesus Christ in the service. In the first century, that had to do with wearing a veil, not wearing a veil, because that was accepted cultural understanding. In our culture, it's different. It's a, it's a different thing altogether. Maybe one application would be, there are cultural norms you have to pay attention to. But if someone was coming to church in very scanty dress, uh, we might have to say a word about that. I mean, it's very hard when you're leading worship and everyone's eyes are over there. And uh, this person's kind of soaking it up. So you, 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 there are cultural norms, but it's different in our culture than it was in, in their culture. Braided hair. See, the, what it means to have braided hair was different today, is different today than it was back then. Braided hair and wearing jewelry in the first century, especially in Ephesus, where Paul writes uh, 1 Timothy, or to which Paul sends 1 Timothy, that was a sign of being haughty, being rich, uh, being loose. In fact, the, the jewelry thing uh, and short hair on a woman well, was a sign of prostitution. So the principle here is Christian women don't dress like prostitutes. All right? Don't dress haughty, don't dress ungodly. In the first century, that entails by application one thing, but in our, in our society, it means something different. Same thing, I would argue, with women keeping silence in the church. If you read 1 Corinthians, every, you know, if you quote a verse out of context, it, you really can screw people up. Read the next verse in 1 Corinthians 32. Paul says, women should keep silence in the church and learn in submission. And then he says in verse 33, if they have questions, they should ask their husbands when they get home. Now, Paul already told us in 1 Corinthians 11 that a woman can pray and prophesy. So clearly there's context in which she can, under the anointing of God, speak out truths. There's other contexts in the first century where if she has a question, she shouldn't ask it in church, but ask her husband when she gets home. See, the issue here is that in the first century, women were almost without exception uneducated. They didn't have the opportunities to learn like men did, to study like men did, so they didn't understand usually like men did, so they'd have questions. We know this from uh, the rabbis in the synagogues that very frequently during a uh, synagogue service, Usually they'd sit on, on different sides, women over here, men over here. And the, the wives would ask their husbands questions about what the rabbi was saying during the service. And it was really disruptive. Hey, Charlie, what's this Yahoo talking about? I don't understand it. Oh, Goethe, shut up. You know, you just, yeah, you know, you don't understand. And, and then yeah, it's kind of disruptive for the service. So Paul says, keep silent. And if you got questions, ask you when you get home. But we live in a very different culture, you see. And you just can't lift something like that out and apply it to, to our culture. The principle there is keeping order in the church. Finally, third principle. Very important one. You have to ask the question, is this particular passage or this particular teaching part of God's accommodating himself to human culture, or does it express God's ideal? Is God accommodating himself to, our, uh, to a culture, or is it God's ideal? For example, polygamy. 
God, I mean, throughout, the, throughout much of the Old Testament, the Lord allowed for polygamy. And he even says it's a blessing at certain times. He says, David, I've given you all these wives. So you've got to ask the question, well, does this mean that we should be polygamous, having more than one wife? But you see, you find other passages which clearly express that God's ideal is monogamy. goes back to Genesis 2. One man, one woman, married forever. That's God's ideal. God is a God of love and grace, so he will accommodate himself when an ideal is no longer possible, which is frequently the case in our life. When the ideal is no longer possible, God says, okay, let's make the best of the situation. What's the next best ideal? And if that's no longer possible, he says, okay, well, what's the next best ideal? He works with us. He doesn't just throw us away because the ideal is no longer possible for our, in our life. In the Old Testament times, for the sake of women, to protect women and children, he allowed for polygamy. Because though polygamy is not God's ideal, it's better than having starving women and children. And the only way that they could be taken care of was to allow a husband. There's a shortage of men in these war zones that they were living in. People were getting killed all the time. So here God allows for polygamy because it's the lesser of two evils. God frequently does that. But you have to see what the difference is. So also is slavery. Anytime you go to a, a missionary field, and that's what God's doing when he comes to earth, Anytime you go into a missionary context, you need to acclimate your gospel. You can't just go in there and blow up the culture. You have to start with where the culture is at and transform it from the inside. So though God never teaches that slavery is a good thing, he does allow for it. Virtually every culture throughout history has practiced some form of that. It's not the first thing that God's going to overthrow when he gives his message to a culture. But that doesn't mean that it's God's ideal. It was a confusion about this that justified slavery in America up until about 130 years ago. See, but you've got to see the difference here. There are other principles, foundational principles in the Bible, which clearly tell us that God's desire is for people, all people who are made in the image of God, to be free. In Christ, there's neither slave nor freedman. There you go, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. So God works with slavery, but he gives us the principles which, when they get lived out, will eventually overthrow slavery. You see how that goes? Because you can't just blow up everything at once. You need to distinguish what is the principle and what is the application. I would argue, and it's one of the things, we just got to get the cards on the table here, this is one of the things we really stand for, and that is women in ministry. I think the, the, the issue of slavery in the first century and the issue of women in ministry in the first century are on a par. Women were, and have been throughout most cultures throughout history, usually seen as property. Men own women, along with their house and their cattle. There you have it. Men own women. So they're not allowed, even though the Bible tells us that they're in the image of God, and even though Paul tells us in Galatians that there's neither male nor female in Christ, and even though Peter tells us that in the latter days God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, and women will prophesy, he gives us principles that will change all of this. Still, in the first century context where you're trying to evangelize that misogynist culture, it just isn't advantageous to have women in leadership, especially because they're not educated, they don't know, and especially in Ephesus, where Paul writes 1 Timothy, um, there, the only religious leaders anyone had to associate with women were temple prostitutes surrounding the temple of Diana. So in that context, Paul says, women shouldn't teach or have an authority over a man. They don't, they're not learned, they're not trained, and they have a very bad reputation for this cultural context. But it doesn't mean that we as a church should be trying to get back to the first century. I, for one, am glad that we're not there any longer. Can somebody say amen? Amen. amen. Okay. 
to think that we have to restrict things the way they were re restricted in the first century is to continue to, t continue to take an ungodly thing that God accommodated himself to and raise it up as an ideal. And the result is that you completely lock out of leadership half your population, and there are some wonderful, wonderful gifts in that half of the population that you're going to miss. I think that we as a leadership team would have made some errors, some mistakes, if we did not have the perspective of some women in leadership saying, have you considered this? There is, not always, not stereotyping here, but in general, there's a different perspective, a different set of experiences that women bring to the table that men sometimes lack. Believe it or not, men, we can sometimes be a little myopic in our perspective. Kick him out! You know, that's the that's solution. But the women sometimes have a different perspective, and I think the church needs it. Praise God. So, decide. Yeah, you can clap. That's a good thing. You need to see what is uniform and what is not. You need to discern the principle uh, from the application. What's, what is God trying to teach here? What's the principle? Not necessarily how is it applied in the first century. And thirdly, is God accommodating himself to culture or is he expressing an ideal? Here's why I think this is important. Three things. Joe, why don't you go out and do coffee? You know, these folks always leave and people ask, are, are, are they mad at you or something? And no, no, they're just doing coffee. So you go out and get that coffee ready. Uh, yeah, okay, you go, you go. And I don't know why you guys are leaving. Maybe you are mad at me. Huh? <coughs> Misogynist. Okay. Here's why it's important to us as a church body. Three things. Number one, if you don't make... Could you give me a little more on stage, Mark? If you don't make this... Don't make this distinction between the culture and Christianity. You end up, as I alluded to earlier, you end up trying to replicate the first century. I mean, the extreme version of this are the Amish, okay, who, since the Bible doesn't say use light bulbs, they're not going to use light bulbs. And since it doesn't say use gasoline, they're not going to use gasoline. Very few people go that far, but what happens is you, you, you end up canonizing the culture of the first century. And you lift it up as being sort of God's ideal. And we in the 20th century are supposed to live in the culture of the first century with all of its ungodly restrictions and stipulations and whatnot. And that is, I think, an unfortunate thing. God wants us to outgrow, in some respects, the first century. Now, there are some things in the first century that are good, better than our age, but there's other things that are bad. Slavery being one of them. Uh, the, the misogyny, uh, the, the patriarchalism, the oppression of women being another one. But if you don't make this distinction between Christ and culture, you end up canonizing the first century. Secondly, if you don't make these sorts of distinctions between what is culturally relative and what is not, you end up falling into a form of legalism. Legalism. I come from a church that used to do Always selectively, though, okay? They, they, they're, they're never consistent with this, but they would pick out certain things that they thought applied today. For example, women not wearing pants. The church I was first saved in really preached that as part of the gospel. What happens if, in your, if you're in an environment where the application instead of the principle is what is focused on, or if you're in an environment where you think that you're supposed to try to get back to the first century culture, what happens is you end up with a God, a picture of God, 
where how things look is more important than how things really are. The understanding of God that you get, and it's what I got when I was first a Christian, is this. What God is really interested in is how you wear your hair. You know, that's, that's really a primary authority. What God's really interested in is, is whether or not you wear jewelry. What God is really interested in is whether that hair goes over the ear or not for the, for the guys. What God's really interested in, you know, is whether you got gold or pearl on. What God is really interested in is how you dress, how you talk, how you look, da-da-da-da-da-da. Now, God is interested in those things. When they represent a transcultural thing, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. This isn't a free-for-all, folks, but God tells us what those are. But there are also culturally relative things, and if you make that part of the gospel, you end up with a God who cares more about how people look than how people are. And what's really damaging about that is this. If there's anything, anything that is foundational to the whole of Scripture, it is this one truth. That God is interested in people however they look. Amen? God's interested in the heart. Amen? God is a lover of people. And when you focus in on this particular cultural thing or that particular cultural thing or this way of looking or that way of looking, whatever, you lose that perspective. God loves people, whether they wear purple spiked hair or whether they wear ordinary Baptist hair. He loves people whether they wear ponytails or they don't wear ponytails, praise God. He loves people whether they like jewelry or don't like jewelry, whether they're black or whether they're white, whether they wear a cultural garment or whether they wear a tie or whether they wear shorts. He loves people. He wants to save people. He wants to enter into a relationship with people. And he's concerned with all this other cultural stuff only insofar as it helps or hurts our ability to relate to people. You see what I'm saying? When it helps to relate to people, for them to see the love of God, and you have to look a certain way, then God says, why don't you look a certain way? But it's not the looks that he's interested in, it's the people he's interested in. And that's why he says, tailor the looks. We need to keep the perspective of God in all of this. What? You end up majoring in the minors when you lose this perspective, and you end up getting a grid by which you, you judge other people, and, 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 and your perspective of God gets all askewed. I honestly thought, see, I got this message really early when I, when I was a young Christian, sitting in a, uh, what do they call them, revival, and, and this out in the camp, and this preacher was up there looking a whole lot like I looked uh, 15 minutes ago, and one of the things he preached is, I want you to know, if you're in a bowling alley when the Lord comes back, you're not going to be taken in the rapture. I thought, man, God really hates bowling. Uh, I didn't know why he thought that, and I still don't know why he thought that. I guess it's because people smoke in bowling alleys, you know, and you don't want to be around that smoke. Uh-uh, not good. But see, I got the message. I remember thinking, okay, I, got, I think I got this now. Me, uh, you know, me as a soul, me as a person, God can do with or without. What he really is interested in is the bowling alley stuff. And if, if, if I'm attached to the bowling alley in the right way, I'm in. And if I'm attached to the bowling alley in the wrong way, I'm out. But I'm superfluous to the equation. You see what I'm saying? If the right behavior attaches to you, God loves you. If the wrong behavior attaches to you, God hates you. So what God really loves is not people, but behavior, or looks, or jewelry, or the lack of it, or what have you. And you end up having a supremely conditional, behavioralistic God. And if there's any message that we preach, it's got to be that God is not like that. It's significant. That, you know, Paul, when he was dealing with cultures and out there preaching the gospel, he had to give some of these rulings, these first century rulings. But you never find Jesus doing that. Throughout his whole ministry, never once does he comment on the exterior of a person. 
In fact, throughout his ministry, he teaches things like this. It's not what's on the outside that matters. It's what comes out of the mouth. It's not what you eat or drink. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. It's all about the heart of the person and how you're related to God. And the third reason why this is important for us, this distinction is important, is this. If you don't make this distinction, you end up equating your own culture with God's culture. And in our culture, which is so pluralistic, this is a very bad thing to do. If you, see what happens is you, you hit on one verse. You hit on one verse, oh, I shouldn't wear hats. And you ignore other verses, like women should wear hats, okay? You're selective in this. But you pick and choose some things, and this becomes part of your culture. This is just the way we've done things. And now you're wearing spectacles that allow you to judge other cultures or other people the way they dress or whatever. And I'm not talking about the clear-cut godly and ungodly behaviors of the Bible, okay? I'm not touching that. I'm talking about cultural stuff. We end up having a grid through which we assess other people. Look at that. That's bad. That's ungodly. That's, you know... And it's because it doesn't fit with our culture. Unless we can distinguish between the gospel and all cultures, we end up, and this has been the history of the church, equating our particular culture with, God, with Christianity. And we become very judgmental. You know, the, the, what happens is that you require people to convert to your culture to convert to Christianity. You know, the, 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 the laughable example of this, and we've all seen it, is this isn't the case anymore, but it used to be the case that missionaries would come to the church and they'd show photos of what they're doing, you know, all this thing goes. And they show it before and after, you know, testimonies. And before you have these Africans who look like Africans, you know, they're, they're wearing their little scrolls and, and whatever. Um, but then the after pictures are all dressed up in these nice suits wearing a tie holding a Bible. It's like, hallelujah, they got saved. Well, yeah, they did get saved, but they also got very Americanized, you see? And, and what, you, what happens is that if you equate your culture with the gospel, people got to do it your way, accept your culture as part of the gospel. But that's really going to restrict the, the ability that you have to get into another person's culture. Now, that, that, that example was maybe extreme, but I submit to you that in many of our churches, I submit to you that in most churches, there's some of that going on. I submit to you that in this church, there's some of that going on. And maybe it's not overt, but it can be present there. You see the person who's got that funny-looking hair. Well, sign of rebellion. Uh, you know, the, the person over there who's dressing a little bit different, or this person has... Why, you know, people... You don't have to say anything, but people pick up that they're not welcome. And a lot of you just haven't felt welcome in a lot of churches, you know, because you look a little different, or maybe you talk a little different, or you dress a little bit different. And in the eyes of people, maybe not in the words of people, because we are Minnesota nice after all, but in the heart of people, there's judgments made. Look at that. Oh, bad. That's bad. That's bad, you know. And we have this filter. And instead of seeing things as God sees them and reaching out to people as God would have us reach out to people, we end up judging them, staying aside, looking askance. They're not welcome. We don't greet each other with a holy kiss. And people feel that. And it's not about the gospel at all. It's about culture. But here's the deal. In the Bible, in the New Testament, this is one of the most fundamental things. Christianity was always meant... Is there something going with my microphone? Give me a little more juice up here if you can. I feel like I'm talking in a tin can. Christianity was always meant to be an all-embracing sort of thing. Again, God gives us behaviors that are right, and God gives us behaviors that are wrong, but everything else is negotiable. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And God shows the universality of this Spirit of God by having them all speak in different languages and the people understand these different languages. Showing that what Christianity is going to be about is reversing the Tower of Babel. 
He's going to reunite humanity. And Peter stands up, praise God, on, on the day of Pentecost and preaches this sermon. And this has got to be our rally call. This has got to be just what we're about. He says, he quotes the prophet Joel and he says, in these last days, in this last chapter of God's program for the planet Earth, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, praise God, on all peoples, on all walks of life. Now, to the Jew, you've got to understand how they would have heard this. The Jew is thinking, our, we got God, they don't, and we got God's culture, and they don't. Our way of doing things is God's way of doing things. And everything about that paganism, the way they dress, the way they smell, the music they like, it's all ungodly. We got it right, they got it wrong. And here stands up Peter on the day of Pentecost and slugs them right between the eyes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he says, in the latter days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Whosoever will, he says, whosoever wants it, whose heart is in the right place, who just says yes to enter into the covenant of God, upon them will come the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever the culture may be, and that's why the Lord says, and you shall reach all nations for my namesake. You shall win the world for my namesake. You shall go out in Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the world for my namesake. Christianity, Jesus Christ, wants to embrace the most incredible creative diversity that we can imagine. And he calls the church to do it. And whatever else that implies, it means this. We have got to learn to relate to one another and see one another and see whoever becomes a part of this congregation through the same eyes that God sees them, amen? The same eyes with the same heart. That's seeing the inside. And reach out to the person who is different from us. It's always more comfortable to be in a homogenous environment where they always do things the way you're used to doing things. Of course that's more comfortable. That's why we've got to be very suspicious of it. Because God wants to move us out of our comfort zone. And I would encourage you to be moving out of your comfort zone. Here, here's the final words about us. Let me just say a word about us. How this lands with us. We're to be this, this people. We're to be this people who reflect a love that the world's not capable of. Precisely because we can look beyond the exteriors and see the interior. This move to Arlington, I have felt, and the leadership in general has felt, is more than just a locational move. There's something symbolic about it. The timing of it is just right. We have spent the last two years laying a foundation because we had no foundation. I believe the foundation is laid. We've got things in place. We've got uh, the, the overseers in place. We're running uh, in the office with, 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 a, with a degree of organization that I never dreamed of. Of course, that's not saying much, but... but uh, we're starting to hit on all pistons. And now I believe the Lord is saying it's time to start developing community, as Paul talked about, developing community. Arlington, that whole area is far more diverse even than this side, than, than, the, uh, than the area around Harding. Uh, there's a heavy minority population there. I want to reach out to them. And I want to have an environment where whenever anyone walks in these doors on Sunday morning, even if they're not quite the majority, they feel welcomed. I would encourage you to reach out to people, all people, and greet them with a holy kiss, like Paul says. Not literally, but apply it in the 20th century with a welcome, with a handshake, with a conversation, maybe with an invitation over. This is ministry, to become more inclusive so people don't feel out of place here for the wrong reasons. Sometimes I'm glad when people feel out of place because it's conviction that's, that, that, that they're feeling. But that's, that's feeling out of place for the right reasons. But to feel out of place is because you got an earring going through your eye or, or your ear 
or you have a ponytail on, or what have you, have a ponytail on, no, you're wearing a ponytail, um, that's for the wrong reasons. A second thing, and that is this, and I close with this. We have purposely, for the last two years, put growth on the back burner. We have not made finding a building a high priority, though we're always open to someone giving us one, mind you. Um, but the reason is this, the reason is this. Uh, the leadership here has judged that size is not the issue. Uh, God doesn't call us to build a big church. God calls us to be the church. And if you are the church, you'll be the size that God wants you to be. The church is called, and here's the mission statement, the driving mission statement of the church. The church is called, we covenant together, to be a community of people that reflect the agape nature of love, which is the triune God. That's who we're called to be. And so what we want to be doing here in the future, we'll be talking about covenant community, but we want to provide opportunities for people to get rooted, to feel the love of God through the love of each other. Even here on Sunday morning, we've been largely an event, and people haven't felt a lot of ownership of this thing. We now, having got a foundation in place, want to start providing ways for the tenders of Woodland Hills to have buy-in on this and to feel plugged in, to have a sense of we, you know what I'm saying? A sense of us. A sense of us. So it's not just you and you and you attending this place. We are here together. We are the people of God in this location. I encourage you to be praying for the church as we move to Arlington. I encourage you to be acting on this principle I've been preaching by reaching out to others, welcoming others, show, letting God love them through you. Amen. Pray with me here, okay, in, in closing. Father in heaven, you've got to make this happen. You've got to make it happen. I pray, Lord God, that we would be a people that just exemplify your passion for all people of all walks of life, in all cultures, with all abilities, with all disabilities, with all the different ways they do things. Father, I pray that we would individually and as a group have your heart for each of those people. You died for each and every one of them. I pray, Lord God, that we would be a people who just refuse to let external incidentals get in the way of the gospel. I pray, Lord God, we would be a people who are unconditionally freed from all forms of judgmentalism. And Lord, as we leave this place, we thank you for what you've done here at Harding. But Lord, now we're praying that you just would shower Arlington. Hallelujah. And as we go there, Lord God, let your spirit move there, Lord God. Let your agendas be carried out, not our agendas. Unite us as a people. Deepen us in worship, Lord God. Be glorified in our midst. And we will give you the praise and the thanks in Jesus' name. And all God people said, Amen.